This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. In the classic 1990s Christmas movie, Home Alone, little Kevin McAllister gets left behind by mistake when the whole family jets off to France for the holidays. He enjoys the freedom of being the man in the house for a bit, but then finds himself the target of two crooks who are casing the neighborhood, breaking into homes while the owners are vacationing. When they catch on to the fact that Kevin is home alone and make a plan to hit his home, the kid takes his role seriously and makes a plan to defend his castle. The kid becomes an engineering genius, creatively turning household items into defense weapons. Paint cans, micro-machines, barbecue fire starters, glue and feathers in a fan, and of course, a nail on the stairs, outsmarting the bandits and protecting all that is under his domain. Audiences wince as they catch and watch the shenanigans unfold, but you can't help but cheer on as the underdog Kevin defends the home and keeps the crooks at bay. It's a winning formula for sure. A survey last holiday season found that 87% of those polled, that's about 9 out of 10, had seen Home Alone at least once, still rooting for Kevin each time when he says with determination and conviction, this is my house and I have to defend it. It's a war out there for sure. And though only about 1% of the U.S. population currently serves in the military and about 7% are veterans with former service, we all know what it means to be on the defense. Defending is something we've all done in one way or another from an early age, whether it be our toys from a sibling who tries to take them or from the kid in your preschool class, or defending your fort in a neighborhood rivalry from the kids down the street, or defending your team as you head to the state championship, or learning what it means to be a defensive driver in driver's ed, or as we get older, defending your family or your reputation or political views or even your faith. We enter this world invariably expected to put up a good defense much of the time. And as Christians, we find this to be true even more so as we stand up to opposition that comes from the world, from the devil, and from our flesh, or a combination of all of them together. Peter wrote in his first epistle to Christians scattered about in a world that was increasingly hostile to them, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. He said to always be ready because you never know when it will come, but it will come. To be ready to give a defense, the word is apologia, like apology. Not that we need to apologize for what we believe, but to be prepared to defend it. Peter says, always be ready, always, incessantly, perpetually, continued duration, because you never know when, but inevitably you will have to do so, so don't let your guard down. To be ready, the word in Greek comes from an old term meaning fitness, to be in shape. So be always prepared, in shape, to give a defense for the hope that you have, because it will become against. Floods of believers walk away from their faith, ever more in a world that continually attacks what the Bible teaches and what Christians believe. Many because they do not know what they believe or what the Bible says. So at the slightest critique or attack or false doctrine presented that confuses, they can get swept up and swept away, not ready to defend what they know. This was sobering for us when we moved back to the U.S. and stepped into public education. At our FCA Bible studies with students before school or during lunch periods, we found that many of the Christian kids did not know what they believed and were totally unequipped to defend it. The perfect storm when you send them off to college or into the world to be inundated with messages and voices in opposition to the Bible and godly living. 
or easily swept up in some false doctrine that masquerades as Christianity. About 80% of those who convert to Mormonism are nominal Christians who do not know their Bibles very well or what they believe, so they can't defend their beliefs and are influenced by other interpretations or explanations that lead away from the gospel of grace through faith. To live for Jesus does put us on the defense. The Sunday school song, I'm in the Lord's army, yes sir, never more truer than today. A call to always be ready. Jesus is in defense mode the final week of his life and earthly ministry, having ridden in on the donkey, acknowledging he is the long-awaited Messiah, cleansing the temple, throwing out the money changers and those buying and selling, confronting the religious leaders on their questions of his authority, challenging them in the parable of the vineyard, in which the vine dressers who leased its abused and reject the messengers that were sent, and ultimately they killed the son sent by the father to the vineyard, rejecting the key chief cornerstone. Jesus is on the defense as the game is in the fourth quarter. Of course, the victory is his and always will be, but he will not cruise across the finish line of, of the cross, but hold his ground. As we work our way through Mark 12, the religious leaders are keenly aware of what Jesus has just told them in the parable of the vine dresser. We read in verse 12, and they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And in the next section that we look at on this podcast, the challenges keep coming as they question Jesus and try to find any way to take him down. And Jesus gives his defense graciously, but firmly. Always ready to give an answer, a defense, an apologia for the hope that he was sent to bring. Let's take a look. The religious leaders are on the offensive. They know that Jesus had spoken the parable against them, that Jesus was implying that they were the vine dressers who had rejected the messenger sent, the prophets that God had repeatedly sent to the nation, and that Jesus was saying that he was the son and that they would reject him ultimately. And they heard it and the multitude heard it, so they kept trying to dismantle Jesus. We read in Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The Pharisees and the Herodians come as a united front, totally odd because usually they're in opposition to one another, but they have found a common antagonist in Jesus. The Pharisees were the defenders of the law and the interpretation of it. The Herodians, a political arm of the Jews that supported the Herodian dynasty. But they come together to catch him in his words. The word there for catch him is hunting, to take by hunting. They got their camo on, their stocks, they're hiding out in the deer blind. Don't notice us over here. We've got you in our sights, a clean shot. Hunting is big in Oklahoma, and hunters take it seriously. They got their clothes, their gear, even scents to spray on them to go undetected, all in an effort to take out the target and get it and take it home. A prize for the wall and for the deep freeze, especially when you see what has gone on with grocery prices. 
Jesus is their target today, a united front they hope to catch him in his words. That feels a lot like the defense we have to put on as believers in this on-demand world. It can be subtle and hidden, but it can often feel like people are looking for a way to catch us. Whether it be a moment in the flesh or a big moral failure, or a stance on a social issue that is declared bigotry or hateful, or anything that can be thrown in the bin and of declaring us as hypocritical, or the picking apart of our belief through questions and conversations driven by relativism and seeped in postmodern thinking. Jesus told us in Matthew 10, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It takes wisdom like a serpent to navigate through this world where there are always, we are always in need to be on defense. Yet in meekness and in fear, as Peter wrote, when giving an answer, a defense for the hope that is within us, because it will be a regular part of the Christian life. And perhaps Jesus had this scene in mind when the Pharisees and Herodians pounced in on him ever so subtly. It says, When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not? They have been observing. Jesus is true and cares about no one, not in some calloused, hardened, loveless way, but Jesus did not fear man nor care about what man thought. He was not hiding behind people pleasing or needing to buy votes. He was confident in who he was, sent by the Father, and he would not be giving a political answer to their question. He did not regard the person of men. It didn't matter if you were someone of great influence or wealth or power. Jesus would not be swayed by that. He'd give an honest, honest answer. How good to know that the life and ministry of Jesus was not swayed by man or the crowd. Hard to imagine in an on-demand world where likes and followers and votes and public perception, they guide many in what they do or pressures them to do what they do lest you be canceled or dropped or hung out to dry in any and every online platform. There was a big turning point in Jesus' ministry back in John chapter 6. Jesus was really putting out there who he was and what he had come to do, saying in John 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then in verse 60, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Then further down in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus could have pulled back read the room and seen that they were starting to squirm at what he claimed and believed and taught. And from that time, many of the disciples walked away, it tells us. They stopped following him. But instead of rushing after them to draw them back, scrambling to get them back on board, adjusting his message or his approach to keep them as supporters, he turned to the twelve and said, Do you want to go too? There's the door. But Peter and the others did not because they knew, they knew that even though the message was challenging and the implications of walking in the truth would be costly, they recognized the truth and the, that only Jesus had the words of life. So they weren't going anywhere. The Pharisees and Herodians who came to trap Jesus know that Jesus has not been concerned with PR, but that he speaks 
honestly and does not worry about who is listening. And they are hoping this will work in their favor to further marginalize him and maybe get him ousted in the eyes of the public. Their question? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Taxes were a big issue in those days, as in ours. It's estimated that Jews may have been paying up to 50% of what they earned in taxes, between the local taxes, the Romans, and the temple taxes. So they wanted Jesus' take on this. Many of the Jews, like the Pharisees, resented Roman rule, calling it oppression, and they longed to be set free, something they expected a coming Messiah would take care of. But it was becoming clear that this was not Jesus' focus. The Herodians were supporters of Herod's dynasty that ruled in cooperation with Rome, politics driving them as they positioned themselves for the greatest gain. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That was their question. For 25 or 30 years now, the Jews were forced to pay taxes directly into the emperor of Rome's treasury. This was a big deal. Some Jewish patriots, like the Zealots, pushed back against this. They did not want to recognize Roman rule as legitimate, so they refused to pay it. A majority of people did pay it, but not happily. And the big issue for Jews beyond the financial side of the tax was the issue of paying it to the Roman oppressor kind of like the early colonists in early America who resented paying taxes back to England, crying out, no taxation without representation. It was a similar climate in Jesus' day. So this question was calculated. It would be polarizing no matter how Jesus ended up answering the question. And that is exactly what they were hoping for. But Jesus is always ready to give a defense. He's not defensive in his answer, but he is defending. Something we need to be careful to do as well when challenged and opposed, to stand on truth and not be swayed by who is asking us or who will hear, and to graciously and meekly give an answer that is full of wisdom. So Jesus asked someone to bring him a denarius in order to answer. Some say an indication that he had none of his own, perhaps an insight into his simple life and poverty, not getting caught up and wrapped up in the things of this world as much as possible. And when they bring it, he takes a look, the coin had an image of the head of Tiberius, the Roman emperor who was in power at that time. The word Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus, went around his head. And the backside had the title Pontifex Maximus. And this stated that Caesar was the high priest of the Roman Empire as well. Caesar worship was creeping in. And even the coin they used pointed to that. We are, to be, we are told to be in the world, but not of the world. Salt and light. Still here but not driven by this world, not to lose our saltiness, but lights in it, messengers of reconciliation. It takes wisdom and discernment to know how much to engage in this world and how much to abstain from this world. Jesus', Jesus answer in this situation was this, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. God has appointed civil authorities in this world, something Paul also addresses in Romans 13. God has civil leadership in place that looks after things that we will use and need in this life, infrastructure, order, and other things in society that we all benefit from, whether people of the kingdom or not. 
And so if we benefit from these things, the roads that we drive on, the signal lights that direct traffic, all the things that we use and benefit from in this world, then we have to pay our portion too. The coin they brought him was a part of that system, and they could and should pay it back. I think that's something human governments have forgotten time and again through history. They answer to a higher authority. God sits upon the true throne, and they are to answer to and be stewards of the resources that God has given. It seems like man's rule, though, eventually tries to push God out, ignoring him, then denying him, then forcing him out of the picture. But for the followers of Jesus, we can and should submit to the governing authorities, at least until it turns into a choice of obeying God or obeying man. That's something the early church had to face early on. After Peter and John healed the lame man in the temple, the religious leaders wanted to stop them. They wanted them to stop. We read in Acts chapter 4, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. We must always obey God over man or over governments. But in the scene with the coin in Mark 12, Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The coins bore the image of Caesar, and it was used to pay for civil things. So as beneficiaries of those things, they should pay their taxes. But notice, too, that they were to render to God the things that are God's, those things which bear his image. And we as human beings, we all bear his image, being created in his image. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When Jesus says to render there in Mark, it means to give up or to give back, to restore, to return, to render what is due, to pay, to give an account. And the Bible reminds us many times that we are God's, that we bear his image, and that we are to give ourselves back to him. All of our gifts, our resources, all that we are, to essentially present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Perhaps that is one reason there is such an affront and pushback with the world telling us we can choose what we want to do with ourselves or with our bodies. We can alter our very image, become who we choose to be, rather than accepting who God made us to be and offering that to him. The question that came to Jesus was whether they should offer what bore Caesar's image to Caesar. But maybe a bigger issue was whether they were rendering to God that which bore God's image, their own lives. It's the spiritual act of worship for the believer to present ourselves to him, to offer ourselves up to him, giving to God the things that are God's. Especially for the believer who has been purchased by the blood of Jesus, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, Jesus had answered this delegation, and they have nothing to say. They marvel. They thought they were going to trap him somehow, but Jesus gave a defense that silenced them all. But the next wave comes, and Jesus can't let down his guard just yet. This time, the Sadducees. These were the party of high priests, the aristocratic families, and usually tended to have some money. They had been influenced by Greek culture, called Hellenists, and were sort of in cahoots with the Roman rulers of Palestine, pretty much represented the conservative view within Judaism. They also denied the resurrection and most of the supernatural elements of the faith, like angels and the afterlife. 
pretty much Jewish in culture, just live your best Jewish life now. But then that was it. So they take a stab at Jesus now, and he is ready for them. Mark 12, verses 18 through 23. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, they said. They first took a wife, and the first one took a wife, and dying he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they arise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. These Sadducees bring up an Old Testament passage and practice from the law. It's found in Deuteronomy 25, and it's about the kinsman redeemer. In order to preserve the lineage and name, if a man died before having an heir, his brother or closest living relative was to step in and provide the heir. If not, it was a shameful thing and dishonor. In fact, to get out of it, the guy had to speak with the elders at the gate of the town and take the man's sandal off of his feet and spit in his face. It was a public shaming. We see this the principle of the kinsman redeemer in the action in the book of Ruth, when Ruth comes back to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth's husband had died before they had children, and Boaz wants to take Ruth as wife. But there is one guy closer in the family than he is. So it's made known to him, to this other guy in Ruth 4, that if he buys back a piece of land to keep it in the family, that part of the deal is that he will need to marry Ruth as well, since he is the closest relative to the deceased husband of Ruth. Well, this other guy, he declines, and he gives Boaz the sandal that was required. And Boaz can then step in as the kinsman redeemer and take Ruth as wife, the next step in the genealogy of Jesus, who came through the lineage of Ruth and Boaz years later. This principle of kinsman redeemer seems a bit odd to us at first, but like much of the Old Testament law, there was something in there that pointed to Jesus. So to be a kinsman redeemer, you had to fulfill four criteria. First of all, you had to be kin, coming from the same family, the same kind. Someone from another family could not bring about the redemption because you weren't, quote, one of them. Second of all, you had to be willing. There was a choice in the matter, like in Ruth and Boaz's story. You couldn't be forced. The kinsman redeemer had to be of a willing heart. Thirdly, you had to be able to redeem. If you didn't have the financial ability to pay and make the redemption, even if you wanted to or had good intentions, it was a no-go. Four, you had to pay the price in full. No discounts, no deals. The kinsman redeemer had to pay the full amount, all or nothing. So Jesus was the fulfillment of the kinsman redeemer, wasn't he? He was kin. He came as one of us, came as man, able to redeem man, fully identified with us. Second of all, he was willing. He came to his own, presented himself as a sacrifice. At any time, he could have said, this isn't worth it. And while we were yet sinners, though, Christ died for us. Third, Jesus was able to redeem. In fact, the only one who was able to redeem, the only one who knew no sin so he could pay for our sin, he was able to pay the cost, something no one else could do. Finally, he paid the full price. He gave himself, his life for us, his one sacrifice able to pay the full debt, paid in full. So it's interesting that the Sadducees have this question about the kinsman redeemer passage, and they are, they are speaking to the actual kinsman redeemer who is in front of them. The angle that they are coming at it from is in, the, is in this hypothetical scenario. 
All these brothers die off, and she keeps marrying the next one, but they each die before producing an heir. So then when they resurrect, they ask, who will she actually be married to? These guys asking don't believe in a resurrection. So that's the point that they're pressing on, trying to get Jesus to share his beliefs on the afterlife, which they do not believe in, to hopefully polarize the crowd a bit more and undermine the support Jesus has gained. Therefore, in the resurrection, they ask, when they arise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus is now ready to give a defense. It's interesting how people ask what-if questions to try and challenge what you believe. Bring out the one and obscure possibility to try and unravel all that you believe. Like the, did Adam have a belly button? Or can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? I've noticed this when people press on views on abortion. The question always comes about, well, what about in the instance of incest or rape? You know, about 1% of women who obtain an abortion do so because they became pregnant through rape, and less than 0.5% do so because of incense. Those are the exceptions, not the rule. 1.5% of those who seek abortions. But someone wanting to draw you into the bait will focus on that. So what if you take those off the table and don't debate those? Focus on the 98.5% of the other reasons people seek out an abortion. Talk about those instead. These Sadducees have a loaded question, more to it than really asking about this odd, obscure scenario. And we need discernment to know when to answer and how to answer, and what is really behind the questions people confront us with. Proverbs 26.4 tells us, Do not answer a fool according to his folly lest you also be like him. Sometimes it may be better not to engage, because the question has another motive behind it. Other times, we are to answer, and the Holy Spirit can give us a word of wisdom in the moment to know how to answer. But we do not need to answer if pressed into a corner, or if something is fishy about what is being asked, how it's being asked, or even who is asking it. Proverbs 26.4 told us not to answer a fool according to his folly, lest we be made to look foolish. But ironically, the next verse, the very next verse says the opposite. It reads, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes we are not to answer a fool's question. Other times we are to answer and to enlighten them, give them an answer that will silence them, put them in their place actually. But we need to have God's wisdom in such situations. Jesus knows that the Sadducees do not believe in an afterlife, and that is their point in asking, to make Jesus look foolish who was teaching the multitudes that there was an afterlife, and that they would be made to give an account for what they did now in this life. So Jesus does take this opportunity to speak into the hypothetical situation. Verses 24 through 27, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they arise, have you not read in the book of Moses and the burning bush passage how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Twice Jesus tells them that they are mistaken. They did not properly understand. First, the afterlife is not earth, part two. Angels do not procreate and multiply, and neither will mankind. We will be different, and our relationships will be different in the afterlife. An article from Focus on the Family discussed what Jesus said here. They said this, Jesus did say that the life in the world to come won't include marriage as we know it here on earth. 
However, Jesus didn't say that all earthly relationships will be nullified in heaven. We will definitely be together with our loved ones in the life to come. But we just don't know exactly what form that togetherness will take. Human relationships will be different in heaven, but they can't be less than what they've been on earth. Instead, they will be something more, something better, something far more fulfilling and satisfying than we can imagine. That's part of the glory of the resurrected life. And the Apostle John hints at this glory when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. But the bigger deal here in the question of the Sadducees was what they believed there was nothing after this life. Jesus says that they were greatly mistaken. But concerning the dead, he says, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You, therefore, are greatly mistaken. He quoted there from Exodus chapter 3, written hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. And the Lord at the burning bush to, to Moses said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. God was still their God hundreds of years after they died because they were still existing in an afterlife. He is the God of the living. Something that Jesus himself was there to secure that very week by going to the cross, just days from this conversation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Denying the resurrection or the need now to make decisions to secure one's place there, that was a mistake that the Sadducees were making, and many today as well. Believing there's nothing after this life, or at least no accountability for it, or an attitude of, well, I know there's something, but I'm just not sure what, but I'll figure that out later. These Sadducees and those who put off considering the afterlife are not only mistaken, but they are greatly mistaken, as Jesus said. Jesus has made this defense, and people are impressed, including a scribe that comes next with his question. Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first commandment of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. The scribe asks about the greatest commandment. Hot question. With all the religious leaders there, as for the commandments, there were the big ten that Moses received on the tablets, the Ten Commandments. And there were 613 commandments in the law. We see those in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
But of course, the Pharisees had helped interpret these and apply these. And man had added commentary to the written commandments. Those 613, they had added to them, they multiplied them, which meant that there were so many things to consider when keeping the commandments that it became sort of mind-boggling to sort through them all. And you were left wondering, where do I even start? So this guy is a scribe. In biblical times, scribes prepared copies of the Hebrew scriptures on parchment scrolls. So this guy has devoted his time to writing out the law. He's likely combed through them many times. His question then is, which is the greatest commandment of all? Jesus breaks it down quite wisely. Love God first and then love others. Quoting the love God part from Deuteronomy 6 and the love others from Leviticus 19, but love God and love others? Those two were the overarching principles for all the law. In fact, if you comb through the Old Testament law, you'll see that each commandment is motivated by either loving God and focusing on our relationship with Him, or loving others and our relationships with them. Even the Ten Commandments, the first four had to do with our relationship with God, loving Him. The last six had to do with our relationship with others, loving others. And Jesus makes it super simple here, something the nation had gotten foggy on. That's one reason as Christians, we do not need to be under the law. We need to be under the Spirit, and the Spirit will always lead us to love God and to love others. So we should, in essence, always fulfill the essence of the law, though man may wonder if we've kept up with the letter of the law. Paul wrote in Romans 7, 6, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now this question that came from the scribe, it may have been that there was a sincere seeker behind the question, as opposed to the previous questions about the paying taxes to Caesar and the situation with the widow and the seven brothers by the Sadducees. Maybe this scribe was indeed wanting some guidance. Everyone seemed to be worn out by all of man's interpretations of the commandments. The legalism that had weighed down everyone so heavily, uh, heavily under a system of works to the law. Maybe the scribe was really asking Jesus to break it down. The law will always leave us feeling like we haven't done enough, that there is still more to do, and those who seek to be righteous by the law will never succeed. But the law was a tutor, meant to teach us and to point us to our need for a Savior. But Jesus' answer to the scribe seems to give him the answers that he's looking for. We read there in Mark, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. This guy got it. In fact, Jesus saw the scribe had answered wisely. You are not far from the kingdom of God, Jesus said. If you focus on loving God with everything and out of that learning to love others, that will point you to the kingdom. And that is what the kingdom is all about. And this ended all the questions. Jesus had, Jesus had fielded a successful defense and the barrage of questions and attacks ceases, at least for now. It's interesting that the defense that Jesus gave ended up on the topic of love. When it comes to defending the faith, we can often lose sight of love. We can get caught up in the apologetics, which of course, apologetics are good, having tools and answers to defend the faith. But if we are not careful, we can move into intellectual and doctrinal debates. 
moving into the philosophical and academic realm. We can switch from defending the faith to debating, arguing, attacking, and lose love in how we defend. And we can get caught up in the academics of faith to defend it so that we can lose the relationship that we are called to as well with God and with others. And even our own faith and the love that we should have for God and others, it can become just an academic scholarly knowledge base. And we seek more of the material to fight off those we disagree with than we do getting to know God more, to be in awe more of what he has done and fall more in love with him. Knowledge puffs up, Paul said to the Corinthians, but love edifies, love builds up. We are not called to defend a philosophy or a point of view or religion. We are called to stand up for what we believe and who we believe. Our faith is a love relationship. That is what it is all about. And Jesus said to this man that he grasped that and was closer to the kingdom than all the others who had come to him and were arguing through all the small details, but missing the biggest ones. Jesus would say this same week to his disciples, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That love would be a mark of the relationship, the biggest defense, more than the answers that we can throw back and the doctrines that we can defend. Of course, we cannot sweep the truth under the rug and just call it love, as we are to speak the truth in love, as Paul said. We defend because we love God too much not to speak up for what he says in his word. We defend because we love others too much to let them continue in ignorance when their soul and eternity are at stake. So always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you, but let it always be in love. Always be ready to give an answer, to give a defense for the hope that is in you, the hope of the gospel. For some, that might mean picking up an apologetics book or checking out an apologetics website. Get resources to know what you believe and how to stand up for it. Websites like alwaysbeready.com and carm.org, C-A-R-M.org, they're good places to start. Or Pastor Nick Cady wrote a good, simple, clear, grace-filled book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. Pick up a copy if you want an easy-to-understand launching point for venturing into apologetics. But for all of us, how exactly are we to always be ready? Here are four quick things I will leave us with. First, know the Bible. Paul told Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then he went on to tell Timothy, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When we know our Bibles, we know what we believe, why we believe it, and we can recognize any counterfeits that come against us. The so-called Christian cults get converts from most often from Christians who do not know their Bibles. So know your Bible and you will also be able to recognize counterfeits that are presented, saying, no, that doesn't sound right. Second, be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit can give us wisdom and discernment, and even in situations of defending our faith, it's amazing how God can give you an answer. Almost put the words in your mouth as you're talking to another person, and you're listening to yourself and thinking, how did I know that? Where did that come from? It's the Spirit. Third, Lock our shields with others, like the Roman legions who hid behind their body-sized shields, locking them in with one another to form a wall of armor. Standing alongside others who are defenders of the faith gives us a stronger defense. 
find people of faith and stand alongside them. And your sword will be sharpened as iron sharpens iron. But find others who have not lost sight of their love for God and their relationship with him. Compared to those who are good at the theology and the arguments, but maybe it comes from a hard, callous place, not a living, thriving passion to know God more and defend him with heartfelt conviction, stand alongside those who have a thriving faith and are able to defend it. Fourth and finally, pray. The truth is not solely ours to defend. <clears throat> the battle is Jesus's. He can defend himself, though he lets us be his mouths many times. The attack on our faith is bigger than what we see and realize. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And prayer keeps us tapped into Jesus and gives us victory when we stand in defense. In fact, that's where most of the battle is fought. I remember getting ready to go and share with someone who apparently had done all their research, had lots of questions and lots of arguments, had been seeped in lots of different religions, and the mutual friend who set up our meeting said I had better be ready, that it was going to be a challenging conversation. So for the days leading up to it, my team and I, we prayed. I did my fair share of studying apologetics, going over defenses for the faith, but prayer was a key focus. So I arrived at the meeting, ready to defend, lots of good info and reasoning and arguments. And the first thing that this person said was, I've been reading the Bible this week, and I think I am ready to accept Jesus. What do I have to do? That's it. Jesus had defended the faith with his own word, and our role in defending the truth was done solely in prayer, and I just walked in, and that brother got saved that day and is still walking with Jesus today. So know your Bible. Be filled with the Spirit. Fight along alongside others with strong faith and pray, pray, and pray some more, and you will surely be ready when the time comes to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Lord, we praise you that your truth prevails, that the same gospel you lived and preached and demonstrated on the cross, the victory that you achieved on the cross of Calvary, you who knew no sin, you became sin for us, that we should be saved not by works, not by the law, but by grace. That same truth and that same gospel is going forth in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. Jesus, we are thankful that you have set us free, and we ask that you would prepare us to be able to defend our faith and give us open doors to share with those who desperately need it, those that you are preparing to hear. And as this world gets more hostile to the gospel that can save, may your people grow stronger and bolder in defending it. And may it all be a testimony of your grace and by the power of your spirit who was sent by the Father to testify of Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.